Welcome to the Equipping You podcast, where our mission is to equip Alliance pastors and leaders to live spiritually healthy lives and lead healthy churches. Equipping You is a ministry of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. For more information on this podcast and other ministries of the Alliance, visit equippingyou.org. Hey, 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 welcome back to Equipping You podcast. This is season nine, episode four, and we're coming to you today from Columbus, Ohio, the center of the known world, no more than 600 miles away from 50% of the population in the United States of America. Everything revolves around Columbus. What do you think, Alan? Goodness gracious. That is a one of the largest overstatements that I've heard in a while. Once again, you've offended Ohioans and Columbus folk. Well, that statement was offensive to all Pennsylvanians. <laughs> uh, I'm Terry, church <laughs> ministries leader for the Alliance. My way of getting out of that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually, I do really respect Ohio. So I want to be clear about that. I want to go on the record that I'm thankful for Ohio and all that it's contributed uh, to uh, our United States of America, all the presidents and everything else that you've mentioned, it's been valuable. I'm very thankful for Ohio. Let me be clear about that. Even though we harass, I harass you for your, you're Alan. So you're Alan. Oh yes. So I am Alan. Uh, yes. Uh, director of development for the Eastern PA Alliance district. (laughs) So today we're going to talk to Rob Wagner of, uh, exponential and Kansas city underground. Uh, Alan, you've read some of his stuff and, uh, had some exposure to his ministry. Mm-hmm. Give us some highlights. What do we look forward to here? Well, we can definitely look forward to an energy full conversation. Uh, and we can look forward to fresh thinking, uh, reimagining the church as truly a missional movement. One of the questions we're going to ask him is, you know, what in the world do we really mean by missional? Like that gets attacked onto everything. Yeah. This is missional. That is missional. Mm-hmm. He gets really specific about what it means and how we need to reimagine the church that way uh, in his books, like a whole chapter dedicated to that. And I'm actually anxious to hear him answer that in the conversation. So grab yourself a Filbert's banana soda. Oh, that sounds like something I would like. Well, I think it's very appealing. Oh, my goodness, Terry. Uh, I'm sure it is appealing. So grab yourself a Filbert's banana soda. Sit back. You're going to have a hard time to relax. Yes. Here we go. And it's our privilege to welcome Rob Wagner to uh, equipping you podcast today rob hey welcome thanks for taking the time to be with us glad to be here really good to hang with you guys today thanks for the invite yeah we're looking forward to it so we like to help our listeners get to know our guests a little bit could you tell us a little bit about yourself your family how you came to faith in christ how you got into ministry all right uh I'll try to keep it under a couple hours. <laughs> there you go. I'm um, married to my best friend, uh, Michelle, and uh, uh, we have three daughters. And our oldest daughter, uh, Madeline, she lives here in the Kansas City area, and she graduated from K-State and uh, gainfully employed, uh, serving uh, in the area of like child care health specialist is her title. Our middle daughter just moved to Colorado Springs. She's very okay. sad about, she's also a wildcat and uh, she's working for 
in the foster care system, serving families that are fostering kids with disabilities. And that's her calling. Super cool. Mm -hmm. And our youngest daughter is about to graduate, Belle. And uh, Michelle and I, uh, and we're in a conflict right now because like everybody wants her to go to K-State, but she kind of wants to go to KU. So there we go. Uh-oh. House divided. (laughs) (laughs) House divided. Oh, my. So I think we're going to have a Jayhawk, though, now, too. So we're going to have to... Had to be Switzerland and just cheer for everybody. So, um, <laughs> but my uh, my mom and uh, dad, um, they both met Jesus uh, before I was born. And my dad actually, he had a really tragic car accident where he was actually a VW bug and got hit by a semi. And uh, yeah, and it was in a coma. Uh, had to learn to walk again. His fiance left him while he was in the coma because they didn't know if he was going to wake up. Oh. And so he got when he woke up, though, he had three buddies. They played softball with them, loved Jesus. And they were like his stretcher bearers. They carried him to Jesus. So it's really fortunate to uh, grow up in the church. Um, and uh, the church I was a part of, actually, there's a serial church planner in Chicago. His name is Lorimer. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of him, but he planted churches all over Chicago. So it was one of the churches he planted. But by the time, you know, I was reaching my teen years, it was kind of a sleepy insular church at that point in time, you know, and I started to have this like existential crisis where I had this capacity to be able to, I had an interest in a lot of different things. Um, so I could hang out with the jocks. I could hang out with the stoners. I could hang out with the, like the band geeks. I could hang out with all these different groups and kind of feel like I was one of, but I was very empty. And I remember just actually in the quiet of my bedroom, bringing that to Jesus and going, I, f- I feel empty. I've, everything feels kind of meaningless. And the Lord answered my prayer. And he primarily did that through shortly after praying, our church hired a youth pastor. And our church had never had a youth pastor. In fact, when they announced it, I thought they meant they were hiring a youth to be a pastor. I was like, that's weird. <laughs> they're going to hire a kid to be a pastor. Like we'd never had a youth pastor didn't even know it existed, you know? And when he got up there and he was like in his early twenties and he just said, Hey, if you're a teenager here and you're hungry and uh, to learn about God and spiritually curious and my heart started beating fast. Like I knew it was God answering yeah. my prayer. And that guy ended up discipling me and actually my wife too. Uh, my, my now wife, Michelle was in that youth ministry. I actually had a crush on her in high school, but she was dating another guy that I like to call the jerk. And finally got him, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Finally got him out of the picture. One of those too. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was the jerk in some cases. <laughs> oh, you probably were. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, I probably was. But long story short, it was uh, shortly after I got to know Dan, um, there was a particular retreat and that, and there was uh, a very clear invitation and probably the best way to describe it was uh, Kyle Eidemann's language. Like, hey, if you've been a fan of Jesus, uh, it's time to be a follower of Jesus and mm-hmm. come under his lordship. And I had a very profound experience uh, in the Holy Spirit. Like it was a like electricity hitting my body and I knew Jesus was asking for everything and I stood and uh, I've done it really imperfectly and with a lot of uh, rabbit trails, but I've followed Jesus ever since then, you know, and uh, Dan discipled me um, and he had grown up on the mission field and he led the 
youth ministry like a good missionary. Like it was about him building capacity in us as leaders. So by the time I was 16, I had three buddies I had led to Christ and I was discipling them because Dan had told me like what I'm teaching you to do, you're going to do with some other guys. And I was like young enough to go, okay, yeah. All right. I guess that's what we did. So Jesus wants us to do. So, um, and that youth ministry had the vibe of a movement to it. It really did. Like, I remember there was this one weekend where we had more than 40 of our friends give their lives to Christ in one weekend. And we were just like reading the book of Acts going, I guess God still does some of this stuff, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. So I was very fortunate, man. That's how I met Jesus. Jumped forward. Michelle went to Moody Bible Institute. I went to Taylor University. And then we jumped in with a new church plant uh, in the early 90s. And that was, we spent 22 years there, most of our adult lives in South Bend, Indiana. And that was kind of a miracle in the cornfield. The lead planner, lead pastor, his name is Mark Beeson. And when he was inviting us to join him, he, he it was really cool. He was like, I'm not looking for pastors. He said, he actually said, I'm looking for missionaries. And Michelle, because we've been discipled by Dan, we're like, we're in, like, we get what you're saying. Like, we want to be a part of that. And it was, and we were really influenced. We always joke around and say, we were a willow-backed church. A willow-backed church. <laughs> you get it? Yeah. So yeah. Willow Creek and Saddleback were very influential for us. We wanted to be a church for the unchurched in terms of like, let's make disciples of people who don't know Jesus, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and, and that happened. It really did feel like a, a miracle in a cornfield. I'd never been a part of a church that had reached so many people uh, that were far from God. And then their friends and their family. And it became eventually kind of like a rocket ship ride where we didn't have a building the first 10 years. It was all very decentralized. And this was before it was, we were meeting in a movie theater before that was cool. Like people actually, some people were like, is that a cult? What are those people doing? Like, <laughs> like a church in a movie theater that don't trust them. Don't go. They're going to move you to a compound or something, you know? Yeah. Um, so we didn't have any church people coming. It was all like people that were far from God. who didn't really know any better and care that we were meeting in a movie theater. And then we did build a building about 10 years in. And at that point, the church had grown to about 2,000 people. But then in three months, we grew another 1,000 people. And it was like, whoa. And it was a rocket ship after that. And it started to change my perception of like the kind of the dark side of church growth and attractional church. It started to feel like more and more centralized. Um, I could tell like we didn't want it, but it was like, oh, there's this like kind of momentum towards the platform and this sort of like almost consumeristic relationship. And we were trying to like push aggressively against that, but it always felt like uphill. And then my role shifted at the time where it was basically like take our church to the city and take our church to the world, like local and global mission. And I uh, felt really deeply into what became a genuine disciple-making movement in India, where one of my mentors, uh, he was the director of church planning for the Bible League. And uh, he introduced me to this little network of church planners. They each had their own network that was relatively small, but they were coming together with this vision for gospel saturation in an, in an entire state in India. And that whole thing was a, a game changer because it felt like the things that I had tasted Suddenly, I started to experience this, like this full course, seven course feast. And over the next decade, that became a movement of literally thousands of new churches, hundreds of thousands of new disciples. Um, and it felt like walking around in the book of Acts. And it created this kind of growing tension because I was in this very successful mega church that God gets all the glory and credit for. 
And and I joke around and say we were on all the beauty pageant lists of like fastest growing and most influential. And here's another sash, you know. But then I would I would experience what God was doing in India. And it was like, oh, I created this growing tension. And it really started this kind of 20-year obsession of how do we really unleash all of God's people into their full inheritance as like ordinary people becoming disciple makers and living into their personal calling and being able to lead simple expressions of the church that can be multiplied. And, and that story that kind of typifies the tipping point for me is one of the women that was in the training in India. Her name is Martha and my wife and I were very close to her and walked with her over time. And she was a stay at home mom. And like all the church planners we were training in India, they weren't professional pastors. They're all, they all have other jobs, you know, they're day laborers. Some of them weren't even literate. And they're like reaching unreached people groups that have never heard the gospel before. Right. It's amazing. Um, but one of them was Martha and uh, she lived in a, a large city and there was a lot of sex trafficking and prostitution and God called her and broke her heart for that group of people. And she began to orient her life, like shopping in that part of the city, even though that cost her, um, that was like scandalous to do that. And God led her to a person of peace who was a prostitute and she came to Christ and her family came to Christ and it started this gospel movement in that network. And over about a year, year and a half, there was three new churches. They opened up a new business to employ the women so they could get out of the sex trade. Uh, and it was unbelievable. It's like, here's a stay at home mom. And she's become a network leader, you know, of this new network of churches that own a business. And I remember coming back from one of those trips from India and I was teaching on in the weekend service on volunteerism. And I, I finished preaching, like inviting people to sign up to volunteer. And I went backstage and I wept. And I was like, Lord, I'm sorry. Like, I know if Martha was in this church here, she would never become what she's become in India. Like, we have no pathway to develop her. Like, she would become mm -hmm. a volunteer for a couple hours a month or maybe four. And that's our end zone. And I was like, that is not what I meant to happen. Like, Lord, help us, you know? Mm -hmm. And it started this journey that eventually has become now the Kansas City Underground. Mm -hmm. And we're a decentralized network where we help ordinary people become disciple makers and build teams to really be a gospel presence among an unreached pocket of people and um, to make new disciples and see simple forms of the church um, emerge. And we want to fill Kansas City with the beauty, justice, and good news of Jesus. And we're training uh, disciple makers and supporting micro churches as they emerge. And it's been amazing, you know, and it goes back to like my youth pastor. <laughs> I wouldn't be doing this if it weren't for him. It goes back to all of our friends and heroes in India. So that's kind of the quick flyover of my uh, life story. There you go. That's a good flyover. That's a lot there. That's I, think, I think you answered the first seven questions. <laughs> if we could pull a little more passion and energy out of you, right? Yeah, you know, <laughs> you're too laid back, man. <laughs> Jesus is oh, working man. passion, man. Yeah, if we really yeah. see who he is and what his yes. message, you can't help but come alive. Absolutely. Amen. So Kansas City Underground, and uh, you know you can read a lot about that in the book that you co-wrote with Lance Ford and Alan Hirsch, Starfish in the Spirit. First of all, what motivated you guys to write the book? And for those not familiar with starfish language, can you just uh, tell us what's the deal with the title of the book, The Starfish and the Spirit? So weird. So weird. <laughs> uh, yes. So uh, 
about five years to that story in Southern India. It was uh, my first trip there was the beginning of 2002. So it would have been four years. Things were starting to go exponential. And we're starting to see like, whoo, this rapid multiplication of disciples and churches. And I'm like, whoa, this is crazy. What's going on? And we're, we were building it in a truly like uh, a true partnership of mutual submission with these indigenous leaders, like them bringing the best of their experience and intelligence and us doing the same. It's really fun. But there was two books I read on a plane to India that came out in 2006, The Forgotten Ways by Alan Hirsch. Mm-hmm. Which basically like breaks down like, okay, when the church goes kaboom, what are the elements that come together? And you identify six of them. And then another book that was all about decentralized leadership. It was called The Spider and the Starfish by Ori Brofman. And it's this whole idea that um, mostly in the Western culture, we think about leadership as a hierarchy and it's about centralization. But a lot of the great movements in history, and and this was also occurring kind of in the in the early 2000s as well, there's like a breakout of micro powers and decentralized um, leadership. So like an example from the early 2000s would be Napster. So music has been owned by a handful of, you know, record labels and there's a clear hierarchy and you don't get through unless you pass the AR artists and all the, and then Napster comes and it's like, now we're giving all the music away for free. It's like, whoa, what happened? (laughs) Like the whole thing changed and, Who's in charge of this thing, you know? Uh, and they tried to stop it, right? All it right. didn't work. I don't know if you've heard that didn't work. Oh. <laughs> right? The decentralized micro powers have like changed so many industries. Like just go down the list, right? Like, well, news used to be, well, now news is, you know, just every area. So the book is about that transformation. And reading those two books was literally life-changing. It was like I was in G- with Jesus flying at whatever. 40,000 feet reading these books, like in the heavenlies. <laughs> and he's giving me insight into, oh, yeah. this is why this is happening in India. So the, the guiding metaphor comes from that book, Ori's book. And the idea is there's a spider and a starfish. And from a distance, they actually kind of look the same. There's like a, a central body and then kind of radial arms that are coming out. Um, but when you get in close, and especially when you look underneath the surface with a spider, if you chop a head off, it's done, you know, because it's centralized. All of the intelligence and power is in the brain versus a starfish. If you chop off like the top, what looks like the head, but it's really an arm. Some people don't know this. You actually get two starfish, like a starfish will regenerate. And if you cut off another arm, you're going to get a third starfish because the whole starfish operates like a neural network, like a brain. It has this sort of like collective intelligence where each of the sm- smallest part actually contains what's needed to reproduce the whole. Hmm. Um, and so uh, it's an incredible metaphor that brings a lot of richness to um, understanding leadership, I think, in the style of Jesus. Jesus uh, looks at us and he says, go make disciples. And the whole idea is every disciple needs to be a disciple who can make disciples. So every single one of us is like a seed that is has the potential of a forest in it. Yep. You know, and then with the priesthood of all believers, suddenly like you, you look at the 
fulfillment of Joel two and acts two. And it's like, it's young and old and it's men and women and it's all ethnicities. And now in Christ, like we are the holy ones. We are the beloved. We're not in this hierarchy, like hoping the priest will let us in, you know? And, uh, and so starfish is a metaphor for that, like that kind of endless multiplicative transformation that God is unleashing, you know, through the Holy spirit, through the word of God, through the people of God. And so uh, that's the heart behind this, the, the book, The Starfish and the Spirit, is to say, how do we kind of recapture that, uh, that form of leadership? So I'm all for centralized leadership. And there are, you know, there are both. There's both like hierarchy and decentralized leadership in the scriptures, you know. But most church leaders have only learned um, the hierarchical form of leadership. And if you look at the Jesus movement, and how it operated and how it filled the world to this point. It's, it's primarily a story of decentralized leadership and it's a different posture. It's a different set of skills. And so we're trying to make accessible in that book, how to like reimagine the church as a decentralized movement. You know, for example, in the new Testament, we all know this. It's like the letters are being written not to like first church on the corner of vine and 58th. It's like, no, we're writing to the church in a city. Like there's a church in a city and then there's the church in the region or the church in the empire. The church is a decentralized network. That is the truth. That is the reality of the body of Christ. It is a body, which is also a decentralized network, you know, that does have a head and Christ is the head. But like you look at the book of Romans and Paul's writing the church in Rome. And then when you jump to the end, leading New Testament scholars like James Dunn say there's clearly at least five what we would call microchurch families in there. It's a decentralized network of these smaller expressions of the church in the city. And I think the time has come for us to reimagine the church this way everywhere, you know, where we need to begin to look and go. I know for me, what happened in India is I watched these guys dreaming about gospel saturation in the state, in the Southern state of India. And I realized, oh, I'm still thinking about growing my church. Oops. Like these guys are thinking about how to fill a whole state with the gospel. I'm still trying to figure out how to fill my weekends. Something's wrong here. Are you with me? <laughs> like, nope, yeah, I need to be nope. thinking about how does my whole city get filled with the gospel? And then right away, it's like, well, I need to work with anybody in this city who's willing to do that. And they don't have to go to my church, my yeah. church. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's, that's the heart of the book. Like, how do we shift to that kind of mindset and begin to be able to have the skills we need to operate inside of the church as a decentralized network? I'm sorry. I'm really bad at short answers. No, that's good. <laughs> I don't do it. I don't do them. <laughs> you're giving us, you're giving us great stuff. That was a uh, marine biology and ministry lesson all wrapped up into one. So we appreciate that. It's yeah, we'll very, take it. We'll very take helpful. It. Uh, so you start off the book calling us to reimagine the church as a missional movement. Missional is kind of a buzzword today. So uh, can you unpack for us what you guys mean when you talk about a missional movement? Yeah. Great question, man. I agree. Michelle has become a buzzword that's got slapped onto a lot of things. For me, it's this blood and fire call of like, our God is a missionary God. Like Jesus left his throne. He left his riches. He left his privilege, man. And he descended into Nazareth and just, yeah. you know, lived as one of us, spent most of his life in obscurity, just being a good neighbor, being a good carpenter, you know, being a good son or sibling. 
And it just says something to us, you know, like when God came and moved in, he spent most of his time in obscurity in the mundane. It says like all of life is holy and sacred and can be filled with the mission of God. It wasn't like Jesus was just killing time. <laughs> and so the whole idea is like, okay, if our God is a missionary God and his heart is like pounding that none should perish. And he said, I'm redeeming, restoring all things. And he showed us how to do the mission, you know, by coming and being one of us living in Nazareth. And then it's incredible three years of ministry and preaching and healing and disciple making and raising up disciple makers and multiplying disciples and leaders and expressions of the church. If our God is a missionary God, we're missionary people. So when we say missional, what we mean is like the father sent the son, the father and the son have sent the spirit and the father and the son and the spirit have sent us. And mission is like what God is doing. And you look at Jesus and his life and his ministry. And it's like, that's what we're called to that. That's the mission. And then the incarnation is how he did it. And we need both the how and the why and a missional movement is when we're joining Jesus in that proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom, and we're beginning to engage in also how he did it. Mm -hmm. And so we're living incarnationally um, and we're making disciples. Jesus said, go make disciples. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is as you begin to multiply disciples, people become leaders without even knowing it. So mm -hmm. leadership is the fruit of the root that is disciple making. So suddenly yeah. I'm multiplying disciples and multiplying leaders. And when you start actually penetrating lostness and multiplying disciples and leaders, what emerges out of that is the church. Because now we have this new spiritual family around the Lordship of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. And we're committed to worship and community and mission. And, and there's this fresh expression of the church does also being incarnated into a particular people particular culture. And now as we begin to multiply disciples and leaders and churches, what begins to emerge then is networks, networks of disciples, leaders, and churches that are filling a city or a region. And then when you start to see the rapid multiplication in a multi-generational way of disciples, leaders, and churches and networks, what you have on your hands then is a genuine Jesus movement. You know, so like when people say, like, I, I mean, no offense to anybody, but he was talking about fair trade coffee and how they're supporting, you know, local indigenous farmers. And then the, the church buys the coffee and they're selling it in the community and the coffee shop. And it's like this beautiful picture of kingdom activity. And he's like, we've got a coffee movement, you know, and I'm like, it's cool. Like anything can be a movement nowadays. You know what I'm saying? Like it gets used for us. Like, okay, a, a missional movement is when you're seeing like four gens of multiplication at least on multiple strands of disciples, leaders, churches, networks into movements. And it's actually um, manifesting the mission of Jesus, like in word and deed. And, you know, technically a disciple making movement is when the multiplication of disciples and leaders becomes so rapid that within, depending on who you're talking to, anywhere from like two to four years, there's a hundred new expressions of the church that are penetrating lostness, like an unreached pocket of people. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the technical definition. And the first one is more like theological and philosophical and inspirational. And so when we say missional movement, that's what we're talking about. You know, in the, in the book, you talk about 
five points of multiplication. And then I think a lot of times in the church, we just say, why can't we just multiply disciples in churches and be happy with that? So why can't we just multiply disciples in churches and be happy with that? Why do the other points of multiplication matter? Well, it's, 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 to me, it's kind of the, it, to me, that'd be almost like saying, well, why can't we just have a bunch of babies and be happy with that? Like, don't you ever want your kids to move out? <laughs> and don't, Some don't you don't. want them to, don't you want them to have their own family and yeah. maybe their own business, you know, and, yeah. and, and it gets back to one of the things that you guys were mentioned before we were recording. Like if my, if my framework is like accumulate, you know, and grow, then I'm okay. It's like, I'm just going to try and multiply disciples in my, whatever my container is, mm-hmm. you know, and it's back to what I said when I was at Granger, it's like, man, at that point we were baptizing 500 people or so a year. It's amazing. Like it's new disciples everywhere. But if I look statistically at my city, like in the Metro of South Bend, there's about 300,000 people. We're actually losing ground, even though my church is growing, my church is growing. It's not my church. It's Jesus church, but you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like my brand Granger community church is growing. We're actually losing ground in the city. There's like actually more lostness. That's why we can't just say, well, I'm going to multiply disciples in my church or my, whatever my brand is. Like we have to look at the, you know, the, the bigger picture of actually we're supposed to fill the nations with disciples until the glory of God covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. And if we want people to actually become disciples, the goal is that they would be parents and elders, which means they they have to lead their own spiritual families. And it's like any healthy family, that means people are going to be constantly sent. Like the goal is not to keep every single generation of your family in your house forever. <laughs> right. The goal is like, no, you, you, you go and you're sent and we're with you and we're still connected and we're still family. And that's why I'm like, every church has to be a church planning church. Mm-hmm. Like you're not a healthy family. Otherwise mm-hmm. I guarantee it. You're not because mm-hmm. any healthy family, is going to reproduce more families. And we're not going to try to keep everybody in the same house for the rest of their lives. It doesn't make any sense, you know? So like, if you multiply disciples, it's like, you are going to get new churches. It's going to happen. If you're actually yep. multiplying transformed disciples, it's just a natural outcome. And if it isn't, it means you're actually stifling something. You're shutting something down. And if you mm-hmm. never have any new churches, you better ask yourself, are we really making disciples? Mm-hmm. Or are we making members here? What are we doing? A lot of stepped on toes. Yep. Like what I would ask you, like, what's your definition of a disciple? That's what I would ask. If someone's like, why can't we just make disciples? I go, okay, what's your definition of a disciple? Because I'm like, I think if it's lined up to a biblical definition of disciple, well, what Jesus did ended up, you know, well, we're at like, what, 1.8 billion now? <laughs> Christians, whatever, whatever the number is, it's like the way he did it, he wasn't trying to keep them all in Jerusalem. And what's funny is the apostles did want to keep them all in Jerusalem. Yeah. And, and it was like, well, not going to happen. <laughs> persecution. There, yep. there will be some, if I have to allow some persecution to get yep. this mission going, then I'm yep. going to, because you're not yep. listening. 
I told you to leave. You're not leaving. Um, mm. And then finally, Peter gets dragged out. What an X. So persecution starts in Acts 8 and Acts mm-hmm. 15. He finally gets to Cornelius's house and he, it's kind of like he gets saved. <laughs> like, like he, again, it's almost as significant, you know, as Acts 2. It really is in terms of his personal journey, you know? So yeah, that's, what, that's how I'd answer it. Once again, yep. bad at short answers. Yeah, no problem. We love They're the good answers. answers, though. They're good answers. So talk to us a little bit about four generations of reproduction and why that is important. Yeah, yeah. It's Second uh, Timothy 2.2, where uh, Paul's really trying to be explicit with Timothy, you know, about like, what's the, what's the goal of this thing? What does maturity look like? And again, like four gens, uh, I don't want it to become like the new uh like i remember in the late 90s and stuff in the church growth movement sometimes i go to conferences and it felt really yicky because everyone's like how many people you got coming what's what are your weekend numbers how many services you guys doing and we're all talking about numbers you know what i mean and i don't want multi-generational kind of tracking to become the new dog and pony show or something you know what i mean um so with that caveat said I think Paul is saying, listen, if you want to know if something's healthy, look for four generations of reproduction. Hmm. Because he's like, it's from me to you, right? And then you into these trustworthy men who then are also going to pass it on to others. So it's four gens. That's what healthy growth looks like. Healthy influence. Like when the spirit of God is shaping you into the likeness of Jesus, everything that's mature will reproduce. That's true in the creation order. It's true in the new creation order. If something is not reproducing, it's either not mature or there's something sick or hindered or oppressed. And he's just saying like, here's what it looks like. It's one gen, two gens, three gens, four gens. And then what's implicit in that is, is everybody keeps doing that. It's going to start going on multiple strands. See what I mean? Because yeah. gen two starts doing it and then gen three starts doing it and gen four and so that's why we say like healthy reproduction is going to be four gens on multiple strands. Mm-hmm. And when you begin to see that happen and it's starting to happen regularly, you're on your way towards movement. Like when that starts to become normative, it can become basically unstoppable. And that's kind of thing we see happening in literally thousands of movements around the world right now um, that are being tracked by organizations like 2414. You know, a lot of what uh, pastors feel, especially I, I can speak for pastors in America, I think pretty much, you know, feeling I get a good cross section of that in a lot of the places that I uh, connect with. But uh, ministry has felt like a burden. Oh, but you talk about in Starfish in the Spirit, how we can change our posture to be light load leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what do you mean by light load leaders and what choices do pastors have to make to be a light load leader, to live this way? Man, that's, that's such an important question. Um, you know, I spent most of my adult life being a pastor in large churches. So one I served in from 92 to 2013 and kind of got to ride it from a group of about 200 people up to 7,000 people um, gathering each weekend. And then the other church was here in Kansas City, where I served. It's about a church of about 5,000, multiple locations. So I just, I share that for anyone who's listening to go, like, I get 
what it's like when you're a church leader and it just feels like, man, this is heavy. And it feels like a complex machine that I'm running and parts of it are broken. I don't know how to fix it. There's so many people that are looking to me to be like the smartest person in the room or a healer or like a political commentator, uh, a, a theologian who's profound, a communicator who's astounding, a vision caster who's inspiring, you know, a pastor who is gentle and an incredible therapist, like the list of things that feel like they're on your job description and the social contract you're in with people that just can feel so overwhelming mm-hmm. and exhausting. And then you add in like all the cultural upheaval that um, we've been through with the race tensions, the political tensions, uh, global pandemic. Um, I have so much tenderness and compassion, you know, for every church leader. I find that most of them just love Jesus. and They just want to serve people and help. I know there are quote unquote, a lot of Mark Driscoll's out there too. There are a lot of pastors that are abusing people. Like that's not an insignificant thing, but I still think the vast majority just love Jesus and love people and they feel overwhelmed, under-equipped. So the whole like low leader idea is like, we can't accept that definition of a pastor anymore. Like you cannot be Atlas, you know, and we have to break that social contract. And the best way to do that is to tap into the logic of the new Testament, which is like the church is a body. And in particular Ephesians four, where it says there's, you know, apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. I think of them more like functions, like being apostolic is about extending and sending. Being prophetic is about questioning and critiquing. You know, being the evangelist is about, you know, inviting and including and proclaiming, you know, and the, the shepherd is about guiding and protecting. The teacher is about explaining and organizing. And that Jesus is saying, those are the five voices and all five need to be heard. And they need to sing in harmony. Think about it like five systems in your body. If like one of the systems in your body isn't working, you're going to feel really sick and stay home from work. If two aren't working, like you're probably for sure going to the doctor. If three aren't working, you're going to the ER and you're probably going to die. (laughs) Like if three of your systems in your body and most churches are still operating on like maybe one or two systems at best. Mm-hmm. It's and it's typically whatever the pastor's favorite thing is or whatever their denomination says is their preferred option. And so like you have local churches that are operating typically on one or two of the five systems and we don't build leadership teams around the five systems usually. Like it, it's like an afterthought if anything. And what we're saying is like we got to go back to this design and 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 a light low leader is going to say like I need a team. And even if like, I can't formalize the team structurally inside of my denomination, I'm still going to build it anyway. <laughs> like I'm still going to have this fivefold team and we're going to learn how to like build trust and build relationship and begin to like equip the church along all five voices, all five purposes, all five systems, however you want to describe it. So like breaking this social contract of like the pastor is like this catch all for everything. And then <laughs> Let's expand that into Jesus design. And then the second shift is, and we're here to equip the saints for work of ministry. Mm -hmm. Amen. You know, so rather than like just teaching, 
and becoming like an excellent content provider, which a lot of pastors kind of perceive as their primary job. Like teaching and equipping are two different things. You know, and equipping is going to really involve intentional development of people through like babe, child, young adult, parent, elder. Like there's a different set of skills at all these different levels. There's different theological and biblical knowledge I need at all of these different levels. You know, there's beginning to think of like a developmental pathway of like explore, develop, influence. How do we actually equip people so they can live this way? Not just get the content in a 30-minute sermon and never actually have it embodied, but to actually be in disciple-making environments. So those are the big three shifts. The first one is like, all right, we got to get to a team that's fivefold. We got to shift to this equipping mindset. And then what I call in the book, intentional disciple-making environments, which Brian Phipps, president of Disciples Made, actually coined that term. It's the idea of like, okay, we have to create intentional relational environments where people can do this work. And it's slow bake over the long haul. It's got to be developmental. And in an intentional disciple-making environment, you have all the right ingredients so that people actually can become disciples, experience transformation, but also be becoming disciple makers along the way to learn how to do it with others. So the thing, the good news about all of this, like if you're a pastor and you feel exhausted, like where it starts would actually just be with you with three or four or five people and begin to disciple them to help them become disciple makers. Like you don't have to shift the whole structure to begin with. Actually just be a disciple maker and make two or three or four generations of disciples. It begins there. And you'll be amazed if you commit to that work and that'll take two or three years, typically like the culture of your church is going to start to change and the opportunity and potential for changing the structure actually starts to grow as well. So when we say light load leader, it's about like, don't accept that definition of pastor, you know, embrace the journey as a disciple maker, build a team around the fivefold and begin to move from just a teaching culture to an equipping culture. And if you do over time, your load is actually going to lighten and your impact is going to multiply. It's an amazing combo. I like that combo. Yep. For sure. Yeah. Lightens and impact multiplies. Well, we're going to let that be the final word, Rob. You've given us a lot of great stuff to uh, chew on. You made me think, oh, I need to go back and take another church and do things differently. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. Amen, man. Uh, We really appreciate you taking the time to invest in Alliance pastors and leaders today through this podcast. And uh, may you uh, continue to see uh, the spirit of God poured out on your life and ministry. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Keep working it. Uh, You know, keep refining. I love that you guys like there's a contentment that comes across from you guys, but not a complacency. Like you keep working it. You keep trying to refine it. You do, Even man. though you're happy with what God is doing, you know that he's going to keep refining you. You're not standing on your laurels and you're humble to be able to admit where you still have to make changes. I really like that about you guys. Thanks a lot. It means a lot. Well, grace and peace. Likewise. Right back friend. at you. Well, Alan, I'm trying to get my pulse rate and blood <laughs> pressure <laughs> down after that fire hose hit us. <laughs> I know. Oh, man. Really good fire hose, though. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I am really thankful for Rob. Uh, you know, everything that I already mentioned there, I don't need to be redundant here, but just the fact that they're so eager to learn, so eager to le- follow the heart of Jesus and really be have the heart of Jesus for the harvest. I love it. Yeah. And, and it is 
all about the harvest. If we can get passionate about the harvest yep. that Jesus has called us to, yep. uh, God will God will do amazing things uh, in yep. his church. And, and we don't all have to be on the same page on how we unpack it. Like I think no. one of the great things about the book, and I encourage our listeners to pick up the book and read it. Some of you will be like, I have no idea how that could work in my setting. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. It's going to make you think. It's going to stretch you. That's right. It's going to make you really think about making disciples and unleashing leaders. Uh, and you need to just process that at the stage you're at now, and just take what God gives you during that time, and and don't fret if you don't if you're not on a hundred percent same page as Him the whole way through it. You're going to be blessed just by processing what He's having to say for us. Totally agree. So uh, thank you, Equipping You podcast listeners. We appreciate you very much. Yes, we do. You're why we do what we do. Yes, Hope you are. Spreading the word that this is a place where you can find encouragement and equipping to uh, help you in your ministry. We'll be back in about two weeks with uh, Keith and Kathy Davis, uh, counselors, and talking about some of the impact of COVID on marriages, on uh, ministry people. And uh, so you won't want to miss that episode. Until then, keep the faith. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Equipping You podcast. If you liked this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our channel. We hope you will join us for our next episode. For more information on this podcast and other ministries of the Alliance, visit equippingyou.org.